This Week at Hope Point. Gospel restoration is always initiated by Christ. And you look at me and you say, well, fun, of course. <laughs> What's the point of even pointing that out? Well, it's a good question. But here's why, I think. Because we must remember that Jesus is in by no means ever obligated to do this. It is a sheer act of his mercy and grace, an amazing act of mercy for Jesus to ever initiate any kind of restoration with us willful sinners like me, of whom I am the chief, as Paul says. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Fudd Chambers speaks to us from John chapter 21. Well, if you have a Bible, you can open up to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Um, As he said, my name is Fudd. That is a nickname, not my God-given name, praise the Lord. Um, My name is John Chambers, but I go by Fudd. I got the nickname at Camp McCall a long time ago, and so uh, it is kind of stuck. So it's an honor for me to be able to serve Hope Point this morning in preaching of the Word. Um, I am honored to be here. If you're here for the very first time, this is your very first Sunday, I would invite you to please come back next week so that you can hear our lead pastor, Richard. He is an excellent teacher of the Word, and you need to be able to make sure you hear him. He's preaching through the easy book of Revelation, so covering the easy stuff right now. Uh, So we invite you to make sure you come back and hear how Israel and church are related and not related and how we can understand that among so many things. He's challenging us deeply. So please, if this is your first week, make sure you come back and be a part of that. Um, As I said, today we'll be in John chapter 21. John chapter 21. I'm going to pray in just a minute, but I also want to uh, say happy Father's Day to all you dads. Um, we are, I pray for you. I pray for myself. I pray that we are all leading our families well, leading them in the word, pointing them to the glories of Christ and challenging them to want to live for the glory of Christ for their entire life. But I'm going to pray, and then we will jump into John chapter 21. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would come now and move mightily through your word. Your word has the power, not me. And so move me out of the way and speak through me. Use your word to transform our lives. Uh, We are desperate. I am. We're all desperate for the Holy Spirit to come now, to speak through me, to speak to me, to speak to every single one of us. And so would you come now and do a magnificent work in all of our hearts and minds? We need continual restoration unto the Lord. And so we pray that as you use your scriptures this morning, that you would do that in all of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're familiar with the scriptures at all, you probably have heard this story. This is in John chapter 21. This is where Peter is being restored back unto Christ. And so uh, my goal today as we look at the restoration of Peter back unto the ministry, back unto Christ, is to take what would be a familiar text likely if you spend any time in church uh, for any time whatsoever, uh, to correctly exposit the text, all the while trying to glean new truths, new things that maybe you haven't seen before so that we can be blessed by seeing and reading this text this morning. So that's what I want to do. And so as we're looking at John chapter 21, um, we are, you know, we're dropping into a set of verses where there's things that have happened before and after. And so since we're not, I'm I'm just, you know, Richard's preaching through Revelation. And so you kind of know from the previous week, from the previous week, as we keep going, what's before and what's after, because we're here every week. But I'm I'm dropping into John 21. So I want to, I want to give us just a little bit of understanding of what's going 
going on in the timeline and the narrative and the life of Peter so he can fully grasp what's going on. So in the timeline, this is after the cross of Christ, after he's died, before resurrection, he's in his glorified body and he's appearing to the disciples in various ways, um, proving the resurrection is true. And uh, before we get into John chapter, chapter 21, I wanna make sure we know what had just happened in the life of Peter right before we get into John chapter 21. I'm gonna be reading out of the book of Luke, uh, but it still tells us what Peter had done. You, you know Peter denied Jesus, but here, here it is. Here's the story. They seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, now I'm gonna take one little side note here. When you see kindled a fire, Luke doesn't record it, but John does. In John chapter 18, 18, when he tells the story of the denial, he actually says, a charcoal fire. Now just file that right here. I'm gonna come back to that, I promise, that's important. But onward with Luke, Luke's uh, story. So as he kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter uh, sat down among them. They, a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, said, this man was also with him. So she knows that he was with Jesus. But he denied it saying, woman, I do not know him. Denial number one of not, in, not knowing Jesus Christ. The next time, a little later, someone else saw him and said, you are one of them. But he said, man, I am not, denial number two. And after an interval of about <clears throat> still an hour, insisted saying, certainly this man was with him, for he is also a Galilean. His, his accent gave him away. And, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now he had been told this was going to happen. Now here it is. This is why I've chose Luke's. It's because at that particular moment, the savior of the universe and Peter who had just been told you're going to do this, their eyes literally lock. And he comes eye to eye with the Savior, whom he just denied three times. And he told him it was going to happen. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. He looked eye to eye at Jesus. And so you can just feel, I mean, just feel the devastation that Peter must have felt in that moment. He told me it was going to happen. And he literally saw me do it. And what happens? And he went out and wept bitterly. And in this moment, what Peter needs more than anything is restoration. He needs to be restored back unto Christ. Now, have you ever longed for and needed restoration with God? Has there ever been a time period in your life, perhaps you can relate with Peter in this moment. Maybe you came this morning, someone invited you, and you're, you know in your heart, like I've been, I've been distant from the Lord. Perhaps it's 12 years, perhaps it's 12 hours. But you know where I am right now is not a good trajectory, and I need to be restored unto the Lord. Now, I think that uh, if this is you, this particular sermon we're going to look at today, I think will be huge for you. I think it'll be huge. It's huge in my life, even as I think about it. If, if you're on a trajectory where if God doesn't intervene and do something mighty right now in my life, it's just going to go bad. Well, I, I, I've experienced this in my life. I, uh, at the age of 17, went to University of South Carolina. I went there, Gamecocks? Not really here, I know, I'm sorry. I'm just, it's so hard. It's so hard being a Gamecock fan these days. Anyway, so I went there. Uh, I was there for about three years, and I was called into ministry. And so when I transferred, I went to Charleston Southern University. Um, and when I transferred from the University of South Carolina to Charleston Southern, it, I mean, it was a huge change. Uh, but the reason, main reason why is because God called me. But I had a period of 17 to 20 where I started out well, and maybe you've had this experience in college, but the 
just kept creeping further and further and further and further away from the Lord to where I got to where if God doesn't do something huge in my life, this is gonna just go bad. I can identify with Peter. And I don't have any idea how to navigate this. And so uh, if that's you, you don't have to figure this out. Today we're going to look at gospel restoration. Gospel is just a, you know, a word that means good news. The good news of Jesus, of him dying on the cross, resurrecting, defeating Satan, sin, and death for us on our behalf, and how it restores us to him completely. Gospel restoration, we're going to look at the sweetness of gospel restoration, the gospel centrality of it, the total work of Christ in and through it utterly, our need for God to do it for us the confession that we need of throwing ourselves on his mercy, the glory of being fully restored to Jesus, the beauty of it, and of course, the call now when you're restored to go and sacrifice for the glory of Christ. Not just for the glory of Christ, but also for our joy. The glory of Christ is our joy. And so I think that this sermon is not just for those people, but every person in this room, because every one of us is in need to hear just how good the gospel is. And to remember, if you have been restored you know, distant in the past, just how glorious it is to be restored unto Jesus. So this sermon is for everyone in this room, including me, including me. Verse one, chapter 21, we've kind of set the stage. We know where we are. And after the, Jesus, so this, he's in his resurrected body. He appears to his disciples. Peter is not walking with Jesus at a particular moment. If you're going to read with me as you are, we're going to look at verses one down to 14. And we're going to see Jesus interacting with numerous disciples. You can see in verse two, he lists like seven disciples there. And you might think, okay, this is a story about him inter interacting with many disciples. But we know once we get to verse 15, after he finished having like a, a breakfast with all of them, he he pinpoints right on Peter, and he said, Peter, it's time to talk. And so when you see in verse 15, after he finished speaking, Jesus said to him, Simon Peter, we know if we look a bigger step, this whole set of verses about, is about Peter and his restoration. So verse one, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. The Sea of Tiberias goes by many, many names in the Bible. It's a small little landmass there, or water source there uh, in, in the Middle East, and it's goes by a lot of names. One particular name it goes by in Luke chapter five is the Lake of Gennesaret. That's not a coincidence that Jesus appears here when Peter is fishing because in this particular moment where Peter needs to be restored, Jesus appears to him at the Lake of Gennesaret back in Luke five and that's the same place that he was called is the same place that he's gonna restore him. This is the grace of Christ. This is the grace of Christ. So it says, um, to him by the Sea of Tiberias, who revealed himself in this way, Simon, Peter, Thomas called the twin, sometimes called Didymus. Didymus is just the Greek word for twin. Tom, Thomas had a twin. Um, Nathaniel of Canaan of Galilee, the son of sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were gathered together. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. Now, he is not walking in the will of the Lord. We know this because in John 20, John 20, one chapter before, verse 21, Jesus looked at all of them and said, so the Father has sent me, I send you. I mean, that's a huge commission. Think of the, the immense calling when he says, so the Father has sent me. I mean, that is an enormous calling of Father sending Jesus. And he said, so I send you. So in the same way that God has called the, the Son to come to earth and, and die for the sins of, our, our, of all of us, he's sending the disciples in the same way to go preach it. One chapter later, what is Peter doing? I'm going fishing. Now every redneck bone in my body wants to scream out amen to that. Like, hey, let's go fishing. <laughs> but for Peter, this is not a good thing. But don't miss this. I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. He's still leading. 
Peter is a leader. He was the leader of the 12 disciples. He's still leading, but he's leading them away from the calling, not towards it. And then what happens? They got into the boat, and they caught nothing. I'm going to come back to that, but that's just Jesus. Verse 4, just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the seashore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. He had this uh, unique ability as he's in the resurrected body when he appears to the disciples to sometimes when he appears to them that they don't know it's him. You see this on the road to Emmaus. You see this various times. He appears to them, he speaks with them, and then all of a sudden, the facade drops, and he's like, oh, you're, you're Jesus. Okay, and so he's doing this at this particular time, and they said to him, and he says to him, children, you can read that like the Irish word lads. Lads, do you have any fish? And it's written in the Greek, like in the negative, like, and I know you don't. Lads, you didn't catch any fish, did you? It's just interesting, he's calling grown men lads. Um, they said no, and he said to him, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, um, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. First thing I want you to see when it comes to gospel restoration is this. Gospel restoration is always initiated by Christ. They are fishing, and what does Jesus do? He comes to them on the lake of Gennesaret. Not only does that, or as it says, the Sea of Tiberias. Not only does that, he sees they've been toiling. He, I think he sovereignly ordains that they catch nothing, and then he performs a miracle in front of them, just on the other side, and you'll get it. And boom, there it is. That's the, that miracle is the thing that tips them off like, oh, that's Christ. And so the first thing I want you to see is this, gospel restoration. So all of this that's happening as we start going through this chapter of gospel restoration is because Jesus in his sovereign will decided to show up on the seashore that particular morning. Gospel restoration is always initiated by Christ. And you look at me and you say, well, fud, of course. <laughs> What's the point of even pointing that out? Well, it's a good question. But here's why, I think. Because we must remember that Jesus is in by no means ever obligated to do this. It is a sheer act of his mercy and grace, an amazing act of mercy for Jesus to ever initiate any kind of restoration with us willful sinners like me, of whom I am the chief, as Paul says. And this entire passage is going to over and over and over highlight for us the overflow of mercy that Jesus has in being an initiating Christ for gospel restoration with Peter. The king of the universe is making it his priority to stand on the seashore and restore Peter. And we should just stop there and be in awe and wonder of that. The king of the universe cares about this individual walking with him. You should not miss that that's the case for you. The king of the universe cares that much about you and really wants you to be restored. He's not showing up on the seashore because he's in heaven right now, but he is showing up with you in your quiet time or in a conversation with a friend or maybe even because you're here this morning. The king of the universe wants this for you as well. Now, we see here that they catch Nothing. He says, I'm going fishing. He's leading his disciples, and he says, I'm going fishing. And when he says, I'm going fishing, as I said, every redneck bone in my body wants to scream amen, but for Peter, he's, this is not a good thing because the ministry thing for Peter just hasn't worked out. I followed Jesus around for three years. I saw the amazing works that he did, but I denied him three times. This thing's over for me. I had a good run. I'm going back to what's familiar. I'm going back to where I'm in control. I'm going back to where I depend on me and me only. He's going back to his previous career, and that's going backwards. This is not what Christ wants in our life at all. Peter was a leader, and people were even following him into this. And what happens? 
they caught nothing. Now, I think that this is a grace. I think this is a grace for at least two reasons. One, it symbolically shows us that going back to the old life yields nothing. Have you experienced this in your life where you're walking with Christ and all of a sudden some second circumstances pull you away and you're there and what do you see? Nothing. It just yields, it makes you feel terrible. You're like, why did I do this? All I want to do is be back. So I think this is a symbolic level for us to see. This is a grace they caught nothing. I mean, if he is in charge of everything in the universe, he certainly could be in charge of the fact that they caught nothing all night. But also, it's a grace because because they caught nothing, it sets Jesus up to be able to do the, perform this miracle on the, on the shoreline where he calls out to him and says, just put it on the other side. Just put it on the other side, which is going to be, for Peter, the key of calling back into ministry. So what's Jesus doing? Jesus, over and over in John 21, is recreating scenarios for Peter to see I want you back in ministry. I care for you more than you could ever imagine. I'm going to call you back into ministry. There will be some pain in the confession, but I'm recreating the fact that we're on the same lake that you got called on. I'm recreating the fact that the way I called you into ministry by the same miracle, I'm going to call you back into ministry. I'm recreating even the charcoal fire where you denied me. I'm going to make your breakfast on it. He's recreating scenario after scenario, not out of spite or meanness, but to show his overflowing love for Peter that he has huge work for him in the future. And so here we see, I love this on verse six. You didn't, you didn't catch anything, did you lads? What you need to do. Now remember, at this particular moment, he's just a stranger on the seashore. They don't know that it's Jesus. And he just says, oh, you fished all night. Well, from my perspective, you just need to pick it up from this side and just throw it on that side, you'll get all kinds of stuff. Now, you can just imagine professional fishermen looking at stranger and saying, oh, thanks, the other side. We get it. Um, that would be my reaction, but I'm a sinner. Uh, but, but we don't know why. But for some reason, his sovereignty just caused, causes them to obey. So they cast it on the other side. And they're not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish that they had. Jesus is initiating everything that's going on, but what's he doing? He's doing something even deeper here, which is recreating the miracle where he called Peter into ministry. And this is all a grace. You can see this right here. Luke 5, this is when Peter was called into ministry. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out in the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Sounds familiar, right? But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they'd done this, they enclosed such a large number of fish, the nets were breaking. Now, in the same way he's recommissioning him and calling him, he's saying, remember when I called you, you caught a bunch of fish? And remember how I called you and you're not going to be a fisher of fish, but a fisher of men now? I want you to realize I'm not done with you. I am not. And so what happens? They signaled to their partners, the other boat, to come and help them as they came and filled boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. The only right response when Christ has done an amazing miracle in our life is to see, okay, I'm a sinner, and he is Lord, and all I should do is just fall down and worship before him and give him all the praise and glory. Even for the miracle he's done in our own life to call us out of, the, the, of darkness, as it says in Colossians 1, we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the son he loves. That is a miracle that we should fall down our knees and worship him. And what do they do? It says this, for he who were with him astonished at the catch of fish they had, they saw James and John, sons of Debedee, all partners in Simon. And Jesus said, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And then when they had brought their boats back, they left everything 
and followed him. They were willing to go everything. This is just for all the Peters in the room, all the Peters that, that run away. Jesus is doing the same miracle for Peter this day in the same way that he called him. I, I called you and did a miracle by letting you catch a lot of fish and then called you to fish, fishers men. And he's coming to him in John chapter 21, recreating that same scenario to say, Peter, you're still called. Peter, you might be done with me, but I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. Some of you need to hear that this morning. You might think that you're just done with the Lord. You, you can't do it. The truth is you're never ever capable to do it. The Lord's not done with you. The Lord wants you to come and receive restoration. As it says, they were not able to haul it in. This is an overflow of blessings. When we're restored, there's an overflow of blessings to us. Now, what does John, John knows that this was Peter's calling. This wasn't John's calling. This wasn't Matthew's calling. It was Peter's calling. Peter was called when the fish happened. So John looks at him, verse seven, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he always gives the longest title possible instead of just saying, I therefore said, the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said, he looked straight at Peter. He knew this was Peter's calling. What does he say? It's the Lord. Can you just imagine in that moment, Peter's range of emotions. I mean, he's fishing all night. This is where the Lord called me. He called me on this lake. He did a miracle right there. And we're catching, I guess it was more like this, I'm 21st century. But, and so he's fishing all night. And then John looks at him and says, it's the Lord. The flood of emotions that looks at him and say, Christ has come back for me. He's come to call me. And so what does he do? Now, Peter's always been a ready, fire, aim kind of guy. Ready, go, set. I mean, he's just backwards. Notice the, the, the sequential things that he does here. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said, um, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard this, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. Now, when I swim, I don't usually put on a bunch of clothes. What he does is he puts on his clothes because he was stripped for work um, and threw himself into the sea. Now, when we look at that, you're thinking, why is he doing what is seemingly the reverse order? I know he's a ready-to-go-sit kind of person anyway, but what is he putting on his outer garments for and then throwing himself to the sea? Well, Spurgeon points out something that I think is just great, where he said, Peter knew that he was going before the king and he must be clothed appropriately in order to worship Christ. So he puts on his outer garments and start swimming. Have you ever seen Forrest Gump, you know, and he's on the shrimp boat and he hasn't seen Lieutenant Dan in a while and he's going by and Lieutenant Dan's on the, on the dock and then all of a sudden he sees Lieutenant Dan and instead of, you know, parking the boat, he just jumps in and the boat crashes. He's like, Lieutenant Dan, he just jumps in. Peter pulls a full Forrest Gump. He just jumps straight in and just starts swimming towards Jesus. And it says here that he threw himself. He threw himself. This isn't just like a little toss. This is a, a violent hurling, a violent flinging. This is reckless abandon, hurling his body into the water. He says, it's the water. I mean, it's the Lord. And so he's been staring all night. And what does he do? He sees Christ. The flood of emotions fills him. And he's like, the Lord is here. And the only thing he knows to do is to throw himself on the mercies of Christ. Number two, our only right response when the gospel restoration is being offered to us by Jesus is to throw ourselves onto his overflowing mercies. This is what Peter does. Now, I don't know if you can swim faster than a boat, but I can't. <laughs> and John, I, th I think John, uh, 
thinks that Peter's an imbecile. If you read the writings, I think John, he's always pointing out like when the resurrection, by the way, I outran Peter to the grave. Just wanted to let you know. Uh, and then here he says, he's sure to point out the other disciples came in the boat, you know, like regular people. And dra- we did the work. We dragged that full fe- net of 153 people while Mr. Swimmer kept going because we weren't actually far from the land. We were just 100 yards off. So while Peter's woofing it in the water, we just, you know, like, okay, Peter, we're going to get here first and dry, but you just come on up here. Uh, and so I think John, I mean, if you read, John's always kind of digging at Peter. Uh, and so he gets there and Peter, um, Peter's so excited. He throws himself into the water. He gets up there and John kind of, you know, dra- makes fun of him a little bit. But when we get here, we see Peter jumps out in verse nine. Now, um, you can imagine how he must feel as he's swimming up, knowing the Lord's on the shore. And what does he want to do? He just wants to run straight to him. But the moment he gets on the shore, he looks over, Jesus is making breakfast. And what does it say? At a charcoal fire. When they got out of the land, they saw a charcoal fire. And as he's, the excitement's there, you can just feel the lump form in his throat because he sees a charcoal. It's only in the Bible twice. The words charcoal fire. Mark doesn't record it. Matthew doesn't record it. Luke doesn't record it. Only John. John 18, 18. John 21, 9. Charcoal fire is what he was warming himself when he denied. And of all fires for Jesus to make breakfast with, he makes a charcoal fire intentionally. I think it's intentional because he wants him to see that he's calling him, but he still has to have a conversation. Now, the only right response for us to have is to throw ourselves on the mercies of Christ. And that's what Peter does, but he knows he's got to have a conversation. But why? Why is it that the only right response for us is to throw ourselves on the mercies of Christ? Because there's more mercy, as the old Puritan preacher says, there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. We can't out the mercy of God. So our only right response is let us feel the mercy of Jesus. So here's the point. Throw yourself on Christ's mercy this morning. If you know you've wandered far, he died for you. He defeated Satan, sin, and death for you. And the sin that he's pointing out right now, you don't need to feel bad about because he said, I died for that one. Receive forgiveness and be restored. Now he runs up. He's got the huge lump in his throat because he sees this. Now what is Jesus doing by making the charcoal fire? I mean, you could say, is Jesus just mean? Is Jesus just like, Hey, Peter, notice the charcoal fire? That's how you denied me. Is, is Christ being mean here? I don't think that he's being mean. Obviously, he's God. And so what he's wanting to do is to show Peter, listen, we're going to have to have a conversation. And the aroma that you smell right now is, the, is of your greatest failure ever. But that aroma of your greatest failure is going to soon become the sweetest aroma ever because you remember it charcoal of your greatest failure. But in just a minute after you're restored, you're going to love the smell of charcoal. It's going to remind you of your being fully restored unto me. So Jesus isn't um, mean. Instead, this is an, an amazing act of love and mercy for him to point out Peter's sin. He's pointing out to him so that he can say, I want you to be restored to me, but you have this sin, and the only way you can be restored is by confession. So I need to point it out to you so that you can be restored. He does this in our lives all the time by the power of the Spirit. It's not unloving when God points out our sin. It's the most loving thing he can do. Sometimes he uses people like our spouse. Amen? Amen. It's always fun. Anyway, um, oh yeah? Well, how, no, um, that's always a bad reaction. 
So he's pointing it out to Peter, and he's saying, we're going to need to have a conversation. So he's recreating this, and his call into ministry, and he's saying, I'm still here. This charcoal fire reminds you of your greatest failure, but it's going to be soon the soothing aroma of the fact that you've been forgiven and a reminder of one of your most cherished moments, restoration. Restoration. God has done this in my life. Has he ever done it in yours? Taken something where it reminds you of your greatest failure, but now you've been forgiven, and whenever you think about that, you don't dread it anymore. It becomes one of your greatest remembrances of Christ's forgiveness in your life. A very Romans 8:28 kind of moment. But what is Peter going to experience here? He's going to have to have a conversation, but Jesus doesn't jump to the conversation right away. I mean, I find this absolutely amazing. He makes them breakfast. They got out. There's a charcoal fire with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled in the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. There's no significance besides it's just a lot. Um, and although they were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. They fished all night. They have to be hungry. Why is Jesus having breakfast on the seashore? I called it the breakfast that changed everything. I think Jesus is calling them breakfast. The God of the universe is making them a meal because he's saying, Peter, it's time for you to have the gospel invitation to come in here and rest. You, you, you can't have restoration without rest. He wants them to understand gospel restoration. Peter, stop and sit down. Quit trying to prove yourself. You're tired. You're hungry. You fished all night. You caught nothing. And the part that you just don't get is the rest part. There's work to be done. I mean, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit's going to fall, and you're going to preach, and 3,000 people are going to get saved. I know you want to work, Peter, but stop trying to work. That's not how it works. It's grace. Now go do good works, not works in order to receive grace. So come and sit down, know that I'm in control. I'm going to meet your greatest physical need of hunger so that you can see that your greatest spiritual need is forgiveness. Sit down and experience gospel rest right here. All of Peter's time is trying to show that he's a worker for Jesus and he needs to experience the beautiful gospel rest. It's our third one. Gospel restoration is a call back into full fellowship. That's what Peter's is experiencing. And the rest in the gospel. Jesus' invitation at this breakfast is back into full fellowship as he goes into this conversation and wanting him to understand that gospel rest is what's being offered to him. As Pastor Richard preached last week when he uh, read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 9 through 11, he said, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of, of, of disobedience. Um, another example of gospel rest is given to us in Matthew chapter 11. I encourage you, uh, to, if you love listening to sermons and you weren't here this day, go look through the Hope Point sermons on November the 28th when Dan Iacovelli preached a theology of rest from Matthew 11. It is outstanding. I'm just going to read the verses. He's going to preach on it for 45 minutes in that sermon. I encourage you to go, to go listen to it. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take, yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is what the gospel gives us. Don't work for salvation anymore. You'll never achieve it. Instead, Christ has done all the work necessary on the cross. Receive rest. From my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jerry Bridges has this amazing quote when he talks about believers 
needing the gospel every day. Unbelievers need it to get saved. Believers still need the gospel. When you come to the cross of Christ, you don't come to it and get saved and then go out and try to do stuff. When you come to the cross of Christ to be saved, you stay at the foot of the cross forever. It's our only hope. Bridges says it this way. Christians need to hear the gospel all of their lives because the gospel that continues to remind us of our day-to-day acceptance with the Father is not based on what we do for God, but upon what Christ has done for us in a sinful life and sin-bearing death. I be- oh, this is so good. I began to see, we feel this, we stand before God today as righteous as we will ever be in heaven. That's what the righteousness of Christ has been given to us. In heaven one day, I mean, we're gonna be fully righteous, glorified body. But because of justification, we stand before God today because we have Christ as righteous as we will ever be in heaven because God has clothed us with the righteousness of his son. Therefore, I don't have to perform to be accepted by God. I'm now free to obey him and serve him because I have already accepted him, been accepted to him in Christ. My driving motivation now is not guilt, but gratitude. Yet even we understand that our acceptance with God is based on Christ's work, we still naturally will drift back over to performance mindset. Consequently, we must continually return to the gospel. To use an expression of the old preacher Jack Miller, we must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And that's what Peter needs to get through his head. That's what I need to get through my head. Gospel rest. Work, work comes, but grace first. As John MacArthur says, the gospel calls sinners to submit fully to Jesus Christ and to find their lives by losing them, to gain their lives by abandoning them, and to live life to the fullest by emptying them. Now, after breakfast, Jesus zooms in on Peter and it's time to have the conversation. And this can feel, this can feel tough. You know, he, he has this with the woman at the well in John 5. He's, he's not going to skirt around things. When there's sin in our lives, he's going to approach it. He's always loving. He does it the absolute best, but he still has, he's not going to brush it aside. When they finished breakfast, he said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, I mean, he named him Peter, and in this moment, he calls him Simon, son of John. It's like the full name, you know, when your parents give you the full name. In other words, you really need to pay attention. This is important. We need to deal with the three denials. And he looks right at him and he says, do you love me more than these? Now, the than these is ambiguous in the Greek. Like, what is it? It could be a possible of at least two things. Do you love me more than these, as in these men, these other disciples that are with us? They love me. Do you love me more than they love me? Well, we know in Matthew 26, right before the denial, Peter makes some pretty bold declarations. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. That's a bold declaration. And Jesus said to him, I truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. So he says, do you love me more than these? Because you said you did, but you deny me. But it's ambiguous. It could be, do you love me more than these men? Or it could be, do you love me more than these, as in the nets, the fish, the fishing stuff? Do you love me more than these? As in, do you love me more than the old life? You're back to the old life now, Peter. Do you love me more than that? Either way, Jesus is helping Peter see this. You broke a promise and you've returned to the old life. And as difficult as this is, this is a grace of Jesus to point this out to him because this is how Peter will be restored. 
So when Jesus, by the Spirit, then therefore presses in on our lives and specifically points out our sin, as painful as it is, it's not to condemn us. Romans 8.1, there's therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. Instead, the reason why it's a grace, it's not to condemn us because he's already died for that sin he's pointing out. It's so that we'll be sanctified. We'll confess it, we'll repent, and then we're made back to righteousness of Christ. You're made back into growing in your holiness. And so I want you to notice the restorative language that Jesus uses with Peter. Because we would say, do you love me more than these? And he says, Lord, you know I love you. And we would say, well, then why did you deny me? That's not what he does. That's not what he does at all. That shows us our fourth note on gospel restoration. Gospel restoration with Jesus doesn't dwell on the past. It points us forward to a future ministry with him. He doesn't say, then why did you deny me? Do you love me? Go preach the word. He's not pointing backwards. He's pointing forward. He does it three times. He said, do you love me? Feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And, Peter, and Jesus said, feed my sheep. Three denials, three confessions of love, three times forgiven, fully publicly restored now, and all of his disciples all by one cross. Not only does he restore him, but he literally recommissions him now. I called you to be a fisherman, and now I'm sending you back to be a fisherman again. Don't fish for fish anymore, Peter. What a savior. What an amazing savior who would do this. Now, as we get to verse 18, <clears throat> Jesus is going to do something, um, I think, unbelievable. Because the key issue before for Peter was he was scared to sacrifice everything. The reason why he denied is because he didn't want to die. He was scared to die. And he tells him this as we get to verse 18. He's fully restored. He's called him into a future ministry. I mean, he, you can read the book of Acts. It's an amazing ministry. But then he's going to tell him this. Truly, truly, verse 18, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you would stretch out your hands and another would dress you and carry you where you not want to go. And you're like, what does that mean? Thank you, John, for verse 19, for telling me. He said to show him by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Same two words he says when he called him into ministry. If you look in Mark, it's the same two words, follow me. That's our fifth one. Gospel restoration results in a willingness to sacrifice everything for Christ. He goes right to the heart of it all. Peter, you weren't before, and you were scared, and you denied me. Now, you're going to, and we know as church history tells us. Peter was now willing to sacrifice everything for Christ. Church history shows us that he was martyred. Now, there's stories that he was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified like Jesus. There's, that could be true. We don't know for sure. But we do know that he was martyred for his faith. And we know that he lived about another 30 years after this particular moment. So that means faithfully for 30 full years, he followed Jesus Christ knowing that this could be the day that I'm going to die. This could be the day that I'm going to die. This could be the day until he finally did succumb to a martyr's death for Jesus Christ. He was willing to sacrifice everything for Christ now. This is what gospel restoration does. This is what it does for all of us. We are to be willing to sacrifice everything for the cross of Christ. There's a story of a Maasai warrior named Joseph who does this. One day, Joseph was walking along one of the hot, dirty African roads. 
He met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. And then and there, he accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. The power of the Spirit began transforming his life, and he was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was to go back to his own village and share the same good news with all the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going door to door telling everyone that he had met about the cross of Jesus Christ and the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up the same way his had. To his absolute amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, but they became violent. The men of the village seized him and held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged into the village, outside of the village, to be left alone to die in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a waterhole. And there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, he found the strength to finally get up. And he wondered about this hostile reception that he received from the people he had known all of his life. So he decided, I must have left something out. I must have just told the story of Jesus wrong. So after rehearsing the message in his mind, he he had first heard, he goes back to share the gospel with them once more. He limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God. He pleaded with them. Again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held by the women beat him, reopening the wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and he was left to die. Having survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second one would be an absolute miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, and determined to go back. He returned to the small village, and at this time, they attacked him before he even had a chance to start speaking to them. They flogged him for the third time and probably the last. He spoke to them of Jesus Christ the Lord, before he passed out. And the last thing he saw were the women who were beating with the barbed wire began to weep. And he fell unconscious. This time, he didn't awake in the bush. He awoke in his own bed. The ones that had severely beaten him were trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village had come to Christ. Amen. This is what it looks like to give your life, to be willing to fully sacrifice everything for the gospel that saved you. Now, Peter was ready to do it. And Jesus saying to you and to me this morning, are you going to do it? Are you willing to sacrifice everything for the cause of Christ? We might not die a martyr's death. We'll receive ridicule at work. So what? Are we willing to sacrifice everything so that people will come to know Christ and not perish eternally and receive eternal conscious torment forever? Will we willing to do that? So what's Jesus saying to you and I as in, in the conclusion? What's Jesus saying to you and me this morning? The last two words of verse 19, follow me. The last two words he said to him when he called him into ministry at the very beginning, follow me. The same two words he says in verse 22, follow me. Jesus is saying, follow me this morning. You may be far off, trust in Christ, repent of your sin, and follow me. The call to follow Jesus should absolutely thrill our soul because at one moment we were restored. How sweet is restoration? 
It should absolutely thrill our soul. One story, a David Redding loves to pass this story on that a prison warden loved to tell and involved a friend of the warden who once was on a train and he noticed a fellow sitting next to him who was very low and woe be gone. That's a fun word, woe be gone. Try to spell it. Um, his young companion confessed that he was just released from prison. He was a convict from a distant penitentiary and he was on this train and his whole life had cast this dreadful shadow over his family because he was a criminal, he had a criminal record and he had heaped shame on them continually because of his behavior. He had almost lost all contact with him and he couldn't help hope against all hopes that however, the almost total silence from his family meant that they were just too poor are just illiterate to be able to finally write him. So he said before his prison sentence was up, he had hatched this plan to finally find out how they felt, one that would not be too hard for them. And so he wrote a letter home explaining that he would be on this train that passed by their little farm on the outskirts of town. If they could just forgive him, then they were to hang this white ribbon on the old apple tree near the tracks. If it wasn't hanging there and this train went by, he would never bother them again. And as the train approached this familiar haunts of his childhood home, the spence was just too much that he could take. He asked the person beside him, exchange seats with me so that you can watch. I can't even look. And the, the, the companion exchanged seats with him to give him the report of what he would see. And in a minute, there was the tree, it was in sight. His companion's eyes filled with tears. He placed his hand on the young man's knee and hoarse whisper, he said, it's all right. The whole tree is white with ribbons. Such should be the thrill for us, for Jesus' forgiveness in our life. Christ died for us. And Jesus is calling you saying, follow me, will you come? We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.